You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. We'll be in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by, by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has, who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, friends. My name is Ryan. It's great that you are with us this evening. We are honored and blessed that you chose to join us tonight. We are continuing in our Roman series. We hope that it's been uh, profitable for you. As I've gone through and read, 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 and reread and studied and all these things, I think what the Lord has shown me so far is, as an overarching point, the clarity that he brings to these really complicated things that he's just revealed to us. He's revealed to us all that we need to know in, in, in certain areas. And that's it's remarkable to me. And, and it demonstrates his love, like that he communicates to us clearly and in, with detail. It's really, really remarkable. This year in July, Katie and I will have been married 10 years which is wild to me. That's a long time. Some of y'all have been married longer than that. That's fine. But for me, it's, it's, it's hard to even think. Like 10 years is a long time. I was thinking about our, our wedding day, and we got married in Crested Butte, Colorado, up on the mountain, which was a really cool thing. It rained all week, like downpoured, and then on Friday, which we got married on a July, July 13th, Friday the 13th, cool, it was sunny. So we got up in the morning. I went on a hike, which was wonderful. Katie did a trail run, which is like her favorite thing in the world to do. Um, and we got married in the afternoon. It was, it, was, it was awesome. The way it worked is we got married up on the hill, mountain, and so you had to ride the chairlift to the top, which was super cool. We enjoyed that. So as I was riding up the chairlift, about halfway up, there were people on the mountain, like hiking and mountain biking, doing summer mountain things, which are generally great. And all of a sudden, I started hearing voices from, from below me saying, don't do it. It's not too late. Turn around. Don't do it. They figured out that I was the groom, and I started hearing all of these voices from below. <laughs> now, obviously, as we stand here today, I said, no. And we continued riding up the hill, got off the, got off the lift, 
went and did our ceremony, said our vows, came back down. The rest is history, as they say. What's the point? I knew, I knew, like in my bones, despite the, the gawkers below, like going up the mountain, going up the chairlift, getting married was a very, very serious commitment. One that in an ideal world, one that as I thought about my life in Katie's, was, was only going to be broken, that bond, through death. Not something that you just kind of do and then throw off because you get bored or, you know, something else. No, no, no. It's, not, it's nothing like that. Ideally, only death dissolves the bond of marriage. And so I, I knew that going up the hill, and um, I know that now, and I'm deeply grateful for her. What is Paul saying in the text? How is he weaving marriage into our text here? Well, he's saying that there is a sense where you are married to the law. You're bound to the law. And through the death of Jesus, through his life death, that bond or marriage to the law is broken. And now you're married or united to him. To him. Now, if you look closely at At two and three, it's not totally a consistent metaphor. But his overall point in the text is that if you're a Christian, you're freed from the law and united or married to Jesus through his life and through his death. Okay, with that being said, I want you to see two points in the text this morning, or this evening rather. First, bound to the law. Bound to the law. And then second, united to Jesus. I feel echoey. I don't know if you all hear that, but I feel that. Just letting you all know. If we can't fix it, that's fine. But before we get to those points, let me pray for us. Father, thank you, God, that you are with us. That you are faithful. Holy Spirit, that you do come and pour out your power and your reign on thirsty hearts, God. God, that you are great, and in our bones, we feel your greatness. God, make your word clear to us. Open our eyes that we would find wonders in it, Father, and that you would work through it to change us. God, we need to be changed. So I pray that you would come and you would do that work. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A little bit of context It's good to check in every once in a while as we're about halfway through this great letter to the Romans. We've got to remember that Romans is, in fact, a letter. Paul would have assumed that the the, the readers or those listening to it would have read it or listened to it all the way through, all the way through, like in one setting. Now, there's likely opportunity to go back and look at smaller versions of the text like we're doing here tonight. But when, when, when you read in larger sections of Scripture like the whole letter or subsections of the letter, like more than a chapter, more than a couple verses, you pick up on themes or connections that you don't see if you're only reading several verses at a time. So, let's look back at the last couple chapters of Romans and we can start to see a discernible flow, a discernible rhythm that Paul is pointing out to us. So, remember if you were with us back in Romans chapter 5, in Romans 5, in the early, early verses of Romans 5, we see this unbelievably beautiful picture of the gospel, that Jesus loved you when you're weak, loved you when you were his enemy, and he saved you. And then we move into a text 
where we're told that you are a new creation in Christ, and Adam is compared to Jesus, and when through faith you're now united to him and you're in Christ. And then you move into Romans 6, and Paul continues to flesh out the theme, and he says that you are dead to sin, dead to sin, and now you've been raised to life with Christ. He goes on in Romans 6 to explain that you're no longer a slave to sin, but now you're a slave to righteousness or a slave to God. All of that, going back to Romans 5, reflecting this is what it means to be in Christ. And then in Romans 7 today, another extension of his explanation of what it means to be in Christ. Here it means that you are free from the law and now united or in union with Jesus. So, with that in tow, let's look at our passage. The first point I want you to see, bound to the law. Look with me at verse 1. Verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So, if you are alive, the law is binding on you. If you're alive, the law is binding on you. How long? I mean, there's not uh, like an aging out of the law. So his point is that only death breaks the power of the law over a person. So to illustrate that point, Paul uses a, a fairly controversial example, in particular if we read it out of its context, which we're not going to do. We're going to read it in its context. So look with me at Romans 7, 2, and 3. He says this, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. A minority of Christians throughout church history have taken this text in Romans 7 as the definitive text in the Bible concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage. On that view, what they, what they mean is that death is, is the only, only legitimate way that a marriage can end and then um, provide a way uh, for remarriage for the surviving spouse. Now, we disagree with that view. We don't think that that view is right. Um, by, by contrast, we, need, we think Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7 provide much needed context. They provide a fuller picture of what the Bible says about marriage, about divorce, and about remarriage. So here in Romans 7, we've got to, we've got to think clearly, what is Paul saying? What's he doing? So in Romans 7, he's actually using marriage as an example to make another point. The point is, in Romans 7, that the law is binding as long as a person is alive. He's not really talking about marriage, per se. He's not getting into the details, the ethics surrounding marriage, remarriage, and divorce. By contrast, in Matthew 5 and 19 and 1 Corinthians 7, he's talking about marriage, specifically about marriage, and he says some things there. Uh, Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew in those two places, and the other synoptics, and then Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 
gives this fuller picture. And we're not, we don't have time to talk about that fuller picture tonight other than to say that if, you have, if you're wondering about uh, our position on marriage, divorce, remarriage, I would do two things. I would direct you to another sermon, a sermon that I preached several years ago in our Sermon on the Mount series in Matthew 5. That series is called Right Side Up. The sermon is called Divorce and Remarriage. Or you can come and talk to me. And you can talk to Pastor Brad. We would love to chat with you about, about that. Paul's point, his main idea in verses 1 to 3 is that the law is binding. It's binding. But it's also not just binding. It actually leads somewhere. There's a trajectory to it. And in fact, it leads to death. Look with me at verse 5 in Romans 7. For while we were living in the flesh, that's before Christ, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit of death. Notice here that the law was never, never, never intended to save. It was never intended to save anybody. Sometimes we get sucked into the idea that in the Old Testament they were saved by following the law. And that same impulse follows us into the New Covenant where we still think, despite all that we know about the gospel and despite hearing it over and over and over again, that I justify myself through works, or at least my works contribute in some quasi-way to my justification. The law has never had the power to save anybody. That's one of, the, one of the things that Paul is pointing out here in Romans 7. That's not its purpose. That's not what it's for. Actually, here in Romans 7, we find that the law is like a mirror. That's its purpose. Now, what does a mirror do? Well, what do you do when you look into a mirror? I mean, generally, mirrors don't lie. They help you see yourself in ways that would be really difficult to see otherwise. The point is that this is one of the way the law works. It's like a mirror into which you look, and it helps you see your sin. It helps you become aware of sin that you would otherwise not be aware of. Like, that's the point of having a mirror. I look at myself in the morning, so I know what to do before I walk out the door kind of thing. Now, this is a really important point. It's a really important point. When you think about yourself your life, the details, areas of struggle, areas of sin, the good, bad, especially the ugly. When you encounter all of that, the law is bringing that to your awareness. That's what it's doing. It's like looking into the mirror. It's like looking into the mirror. In response to that, in response to that, what do you do? What do you do? See, a lot of time, a lot of times, Folks dodge or flinch or hedge, lose courage and lie to yourself about what you actually see in the mirror. You maybe spin or blame something else. Why do we do that? That's a we, like everyone does that. Why do we do that? Well, it's maybe because we're afraid, insecure, because we know we can't uphold the law. It has standards that are too high. And in fact, it actually increases your awareness of the fact that you can't reach the standard. That's the point. That's a bad place to stay. It's a bad place to be. There's, there's no real hope in that place. Again, the law isn't designed, never has been, to save anyone. 
If you stay there, the results are a lot like death. And if you stay in that position, i.e. bound to the law apart from Christ, the actual results are death because you're guilty of breaking the law. It's never had the power to save anyone. That's why we need a savior. That's why you need a savior. But don't get the impression from this that Paul is saying or that I'm saying the law is bad. It's not bad. Or that this somehow negatively reflects on God. It doesn't. Why? Because it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story because God loves you. He loves his people. He's made a way to life through death. He's made a way to life, your life, through death. This leads me to the second point that I want you to see this evening. United to Jesus. United to Jesus. Look with me at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who raised, uh, who's been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Through the death of Christ, the death of Jesus, through faith, you are freed from the bonds of the law. But notice, you're not freed to a type of absolute freedom. No, you're not freed to, a, to a, the, the modern conception of the autonomous self that's going to free floats at its own authority. No, you're not freed to anything like that. What are you freed to? Look back at verse 4. He says, so that you may belong to another. So rather than an absolute or libertarian type of freedom, consider the example Paul uses back in 2 and 3. If you're a Christian, you're married to Jesus. You're in union with him. You're bound to him. And by definition, friends, we understand marriage restricts your personal freedom. It restricts your personal freedom. But on the flip side, in marriage, you have the opportunity for relational closeness, security, intimacy, because of the marriage. Your marriage or union with Christ is not a nebulous category that doesn't mean anything. No, it has actual meaning and actual effects, actual fruit in your life. This is what Paul says in verse 4, that your marriage or union with Christ bears fruit for God for God. Like Matthew 7, where Jesus says, hey, you will know them by their fruit. How? You can see it. You can see it. Think about it this way. Your life, if you're a believer, is a means through which God is advancing his kingdom. Advancing his kingdom. The Christian life is not a passive one. We just sort of uh, show up when you feel like it, flirt with your sin, look a lot like the world, stay stationary in your faith. No. Your union with Christ means, your marriage with Christ means it leads to bearing fruit. For what? For God. That means that God himself has a kingdom-oriented purpose for you. For you. God didn't save you so we could just sort of, you could sort of just like sit in your sin and then die and go to heaven. That's not the story. It's not the story at all. Rather, he's called you to come play a part of his mission, 
to help him advance the kingdom, to bring heaven to earth. In fact, you've been called to play a part in God's redemption and rest- restoration of all things. That's, if you're a Christian, that's your story. That's what he's calling you to do. Okay. What might it look like practically, practically, to bear fruit for God? What might that look like? You have to excuse me. What might it look like? A couple ideas here. First, prioritizing Christian discipleship. Prioritizing Christian discipleship. Are you being discipled by Jesus? Are you seeking him? Are you being formed by him? Growing in him? Are you helping anybody else do that? So let's take a one step back and zoom out. You are being discipled all the time by something. By something. You're being formed all the time by something. And that, and, and, and though that, that reality has very real effects on your life. You are either being um, formed and discipled to walk in greater obedience and, 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 and um, image of Jesus, like moving toward him, or you're being discipled in a different direction, away from him by the world, by the culture, by your flesh. Think about it this way. I, I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago. How many people in your life do you know that as a kid in high school and college, maybe in their 20s, the last five, 10 years, walked with the Lord and now don't? Like, we're, like I'm, so I'm 34. I'm probably about like middle of the room in here, which is, there are a lot of you that are younger than me. For me, when I think about that list in my mind, it's a lot of people. It's probably a majority of people. And I've got this, this sneaking suspicion that if you're younger than me, the percentage is going to be higher on your list than it is in mine. Maybe not. There are exceptions to that. But I, I, I think that's true for most of us. What do we do about that? How are we to understand that? What's going on? Well, there's, it's complicated for sure, and everybody has their story, and, the, and like it's, you know, it's, it can be messy. That's fine. But one of the things that's happening is that people are being discipled out of the kingdom by the world. So like if you're not being discipled by Jesus, that space isn't neutral and void. Something else is going to hop in and lead you to a place that really you don't want to go. Discipled out of the kingdom by the world. So we have to ask the question, who's discipling you? Who is it? Is it Jesus? Is it the church? If you don't know, or if you look at your life and you're like, man, I, I, don't, I don't know. The first thing you should do after we're done here is go sign up for mentoring here at Mercy View. Because this is a way, it's a way for you to be discipled. Now, maybe it's happening for you in your life already. Wonderful. Perfect. But maybe it's not by Jesus. It is by something else. Got to be honest about that. See that with clear eyes and prioritize not just random discipleship, but Christian discipleship, being discipled by Christ. Okay, a second idea. A second idea. Get another drink of water here. Something's going on. Secondly, kingdom distinctiveness. Kingdom distinctiveness. One of my favorite themes in the New Testament is the inbreaking of the kingdom. It gets me excited. 
When the kingdom shows up, especially in Mark, Jesus defeats the devil in the desert. He comes out and he says, first thing he says in the Gospel of Mark, repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom's here. It bursts on the scene. And then throughout the narrative and in the letters and all the way to Revelation, you see the kingdom breaking through. It breaks through in surprising places all the time. Jesus makes this really clear in the Sermon on the Mount that the kingdom, one of the outworkings of the kingdom breaking through, one of its distinctives is that it creates tension with the world. It's different than the world. It has different values, different precepts, different judgments. It, it, it would define flourishing differently than the world. And so this is one of the reasons that they kill Jesus, because he inaugurates this kingdom that is totally opposite to what's going on in, in, first century, in the first century Near East and in Rome. And it's still opposite today. The kingdom is breaking through. Think about it like this. Another, another passage in Scripture. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, one of my current favorites, we see Jesus write seven letters to seven churches in Turkey. If you have your Bible... You flip over there to Revelation 2 and 3. And in these letters, we see all kinds of things, Jesus speaking to them. But I want to zero in on two letters here to illustrate this point. First, in Revelation 2, 8, you find the letter to the church in Smyrna. Smyrna. Now, Jesus basically says to the church in Smyrna, hey, you're poor. You're persecuted. You're going to jail. You're going to be murdered which is like, you know, a bummer, except it's not, except it's not a bummer. Uh, Jesus only commends this church, this church, encourages the church. In fact, he says, if you're faithful, I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the crown of life. We have to ask the question, what's going on in Smyrna? Something is going on, something that's distinct, something that is otherly, is bubbling through in the church in Smyrna. Now, by contrast, if you flip ahead to chapter 3, you'll see the letter to the church in Laodicea. And what we learn in the letter to the church in Laodicea is that they were comfortable, they were wealthy, they were well-off, they were self-sufficient, they were a little cozy with Rome, and they were deceived and in danger, in danger. So let's think about, think about, if you read the letter, it'll become, it's, it's very obvious. Let's think about the factors that go into Jesus' assessment. How do you read these two situations and conclude the way he does? Smyrna is poor, persecuted in jail and killed and blessed by Jesus. Laodicea is comfortable, wealthy, self-sufficient and rebuked warned for the danger that they're in. What is the framework that leads us to those conclusions? It's kingdom distinctiveness. It's kingdom distinctiveness. The church in Smyrna rejected Roman culture and everything that went with it, resisted it to the point of their death. Why? Because they knew that if they had Jesus, it didn't matter what else happened. How do you do that math? when the kingdom is center in your life, when you don't really care much about the broader culture, Rome or whoever, you care that you have Jesus. This is what's going on in Smyrna. The, other, the otherliness of that letter, it screams that they're playing by different rules. They're not playing by the rules of like, you know what, I'm just going to get cozy with the culture 
I'm going to adopt this framework like Laodicea. They look a lot like Rome. And then I'm just going to try to slide Jesus into the mix. No. In fact, if you read Revelation 3, the warning to the church at Laodicea is like, you can't do that. You won't make it. That's Jesus' point. That's the point. So what Smyrna has is a kingdom-shaped distinctiveness that is, that is shocking to, to some senses. Like you read it and you go, hmm, something else is going on. And I want to suggest to you what's going on is that they have valued Jesus and the kingdom to such a degree that whatever else happens up to and including death doesn't matter. Why? Because they get Jesus. What does distinctive kingdom distinctiveness look like for you? See, here's the deal. Our culture, unlike the uh, first century Roman culture, isn't going to threaten you with violence. They're not going to cut your head off if you, if you, if you refuse to throw a pinch of, sin, of, of incense to Caesar. It's not going to happen. But what are they going to do? So instead of that, they'll distract you. They'll tell you stories they're lies, and they're not compatible with the kingdom of God. They will dull your spiritual senses by constantly throwing content, content at you that's designed to do that. It's designed to do exactly that. They will make you look like the culture around you. That's what happened. In fact, one commentator suggests that is Jesus' primary critique of the church at Laodicea is, hey, you look a lot like Rome. You look a lot like Rome. What would he say to you? Do you look a lot like Rome? Or, or do you have this otherliness in your life that's bubbling through? Are, are, are you living a distinct life? A kingdom-shaped life? Do you have the aroma of Christ around you? Maybe somewhere in between. It's a sliding scale for sure. Practically, how do you grow in, in kingdom distinctiveness? What does that even mean? <laughs> how do you look like the church in Smyrna? And the idea is faithfulness. Faithfulness. What does Jesus say to them? He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. What does faithfulness mean? Well, I want to submit to you that it means seeing, looking what Jesus says about everything and following him. Laying down self, resisting the world when necessary, and following Jesus. Faithfulness. Now we could talk about the details and I could give you this like gigantic list. I mean, be here forever. But consider your life. Consider laying it over what Jesus says about whatever. Pick something and what it would mean for you to follow him faithfulness. And especially, friends, when it means resisting and rejecting the culture and the stories of the culture, like the church in Smyrna. Your union or marriage with Jesus leads to discipleship. It leads to a kingdom distinctiveness, an otherliness, or what Paul says in Romans 7, fruit for God. Things you can see when you run into somebody, you have a conversation with them, and you go, oh yeah, I see it. I see it. It leads you to serve him in a new kind of way because he changes you. 
He changes you. Look with me at verse 6 here in Romans 7. He says this, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve him in the new way of the Spirit. This means that for the Christian, for you, following Jesus, like the church in Smyrna, doesn't, doesn't happen through compulsion. It doesn't happen through fear of rejection. It doesn't happen through like finding my shoelaces and pulling myself up by my bootstraps. That's not a thing. That's not how it works. No. It happens in this new way of the Spirit when, you're, when your affections ignite for Him. It happens when you're changed by Him because we need to be changed by Him. Sometimes folks get frustrated in their walk with the Lord because we think that things um, are linear. Like if I, I'm just going to take step one and then step two and step three and four and then eventually I'm going to come out the other side. And just like this nice clean straight line. It's not how it works. Or, or we think somehow, again, it's the inner Pharisee that's transactional. I'm going to do X and then I'm going to get Y. And by doing X, I'm going to put God in my debt so I get Y. That's not how it works either. It's not how it works either. Rather, rather, what we need to grow, to serve Him in this new way, is to be changed by Him. How? By, by, by being changed by His love for you. It's His love that changes your heart and causes you to love Him more. Think about it like this in our text in Romans 7. Jesus knows everything about you. Like the churches in Revelation, he says, I know your works. That means good. That means bad. That means ugly. And in having that knowledge, having it with eyes wide open, he unites himself to you. He marries you. Imagine Jesus sitting on that chairlift going to the top of the mountain to marry you. And the gawkers below saying, don't do it, Jesus. That person is a mess. They're beyond what you can do for them. And he says, no, I love that person and I'm going to marry that person. I'm going to unite myself to them because I know and I love them the same. That's what it means. And Paul talks in Ephesians 5 about marriage being something between the church and Jesus. That's what it is. That he sees you for what you are, everything. And he says, you know what? I'm going to love you the same. There's nothing transactional about that. There's nothing conditional about that. He knows exactly, and he loves you the same. He sees you clearly. No matter what your life is like, rocky, no matter what your past is like, no matter the fact that even now you have this tendency of wandering away and, lead, and leaving him, he'll never leave you. He calls you back to himself. He is the true and better husband who meets your instability with stability, your volatility with gentleness, your wandering heart with a steadfast one, your weakness with his strength, and your fear with himself. With himself. Your union with Christ highlights his love for you that can ignite your love for him and then cause you to put down your sin, to put it away, and to follow him. And to follow him because you're united to him. And it's through your union with Christ, through your marriage with Christ, that he, that he continues to give you power to move forward 
Because it's a constant reminder. It's a constant reminder of his love for you. That's unconditional. And it's unchanging. He's with you. He's with us. Let's pray.